Well, this morning we're back in Leviticus chapter 19. Well, actually, we're just really in Leviticus 19 today. Last time we just read verse 1 and verse 2. And if you weren't here, the real key for this whole chapter is based on the holiness of God and His calling of us out of the world. That we can only be holy if He calls us out, if He separates us from the world. And so, what the Lord has for His people from verse 30 or verse 3 until verse 37 is all based on God's calling of us to be holy like He is holy. We are called to be His people. That is a privilege. It's not something that everyone can say, I am a child of God. Not everyone can say, God has called them out of Egypt. So, that was last week. We talked about sanctification and how in Christ we have been called saints. We are called holy people. Actually, a holy priesthood. And so, that is our basis. That is the grounding for what we're going to teach today. Because without that... If we are not relying on Christ and His finished work on the cross for our holiness, then we will think that we are holy people because of what we do and not upon what Christ did for us. So we can become legalistic. Or by the end of this sermon, you're going to think, man, that's a lot of devotion to the Lord. I don't know that I can do all these things right. And you you might think, well, I can't do it, so I'm just not going to try. And that's the other extreme. You either become legalistic, thinking you can do it on your own, or basing your faith on, on your works, or you go to the other extreme where you just give up and quit. So today is really the application of what we know about God. All these... The law of God gives us a picture of who God is. His character, His purity, His justice, and His compassion. So it's important when we are reading God's law to see what He is demonstrating to His people about Himself. And it's interesting if we look at chapter 19, verse 3, and I'll read again 1 till 3. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. That phrase again, I am the Lord your God, is seen 15 times here in Leviticus 19. And I didn't mention this last week, but I think it's important. The word that's translated Lord is the word that we see as Yahweh, or some translate it Jehovah, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Um, But the Jews had such a reverence for that name that they never spoke it. So they saw it as so holy that their mouths could not utter the words that described God in His fullness. And so, when they would read it, they would put another name of God there. They would put Adonai. 
because they did not want to profane or use God's name in vain. And while we see throughout the Old Testament, though they were good at that, their lives did not demonstrate that they didn't want to profane God's name. I mean, you get to Jeremiah and Amos and all these prophets and you're thinking, man, these people won't, tra- they won't say the name of God because they're afraid to profane it, but they say, well, I'm God's, pers- I'm God's child and I'm going to live the way I want to live. It's a pretty stark reality that we have to remember. So in verse 3, he starts out, the Lord has Moses start with our reverence to mothers and fathers. And I think this, specifically this command is first for many reasons. But I think the main reason it's first is because our honoring and showing reverence, or actually the word here can also be translated fear of our parents, godly fear of our parents, is the beginning. It's a sign of our reverence for God. Why? Because our parents are the first authority that we deal with in our lives. They're the first God-given, God-appointed authority. And this authority doesn't stop when we turn 18. I think some young people grow up, I might have been in that group, we get to 18 and we're like, well, I'm an adult, I can do whatever I want and talk to my parents however I want. But the more I, the older I got, the more I realized, wait, I don't, I don't see in Exodus 20 a, uh, a time when we can stop revering and showing respect to our elders or honoring those who are our parents. So it's not something we can stop. And I think here it's interesting in Exodus 20 where he gives the Ten Commandments, the order is different. It's mother after father. And I believe that God here is showing equal reverence and honor should be given both to the women and the men. That our reverence for our mothers should be equal in the sense that just because they're not our father, we don't, we don't treat them with less respect. And so I believe that here he has mother before father to remind us that our reverence, honor, and fear is equally due to the mother in our homes. And I believe that the reason we have the second half of this verse where he says, and, verse 3, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. Why? At first, when I first read this, I was like, what, what in the world, why is the order, why is this following this? And I think it goes back to what I first said, that um, our reverence for parents, if we teach our children to honor and revere and to fear us as God's given authority and we teach them about God if, the, if we are teaching them as we are called to as parents then it should follow that 
they will revere God's Sabbath, that they will obey God. That doesn't mean that just because we're Christians, our children are going to follow Christ. But when we seek to honor and revere God in our lives, our children will see it. And they will see that the reverence that they show us should be even more so to God. And so in the same way, they will keep his Sabbaths. And I want us to see that. I think uh, Exodus 20 verse 10 gives us a good picture of this. When the Lord is giving this command for the first time. So Exodus 20 verse 10. So he's talking about the Sabbath. And he says, But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord, your God. In it you shall do no, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter. And I'll just stop there because that's the whole point. We are to command our children. And if they are rever- reverencing us, then the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath for them, would be of the same order. Because they are obeying what God has already said. If we are obeying God and, and teaching our children to show that respect, then it will follow that they will be doing what pleases the Lord in the Sabbath. And so I think that's why they're together there. And again, he comes back, and we're going to see this throughout. The ground for that is, I am the Lord your God. That is the foundation. This is why you do it. It's not because you're trying to make me your Lord and your God. It's because I am the Lord, your God. I called you out. I made you mine, and I've called you to be holy as I am holy. And then verse 4, we see essentially the second commandment. Again, a lot of these commands are not new. It's not as though the Lord is saying, oh, these are brand new. No, almost all these references in Leviticus 19 refer back to Exodus 20 or to other parts of the book of Leviticus. So it's not new stuff, but I believe that God is calling us to complete and whole devotion to Him. And that starts with parents, and and then it goes to Him. And so if you see in verse 4 here, it says, Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. And this word idol, I think this is really important. The word idol in Hebrew means good for nothing or vain, vanity, no value. That's what the word means. So do not turn to that which is worth nothing. Do not turn to that that is just vain. So he's saying, look, You're trying to make these vain idols. You're trying to make these gods after your own image, just like the golden calf. But I am the Lord your God. I am everything, and these are just nothing. Matthew Henry said this of this verse. He said, Turn not from the true God to false ones, from the mighty God to impotent ones, 
from the God that will make you holy and happy to those that will deceive you, debauch you, ruin you, and make you forever miserable. Turn not your eye to them, much less your heart. Make not to yourselves gods, the creatures of your own fancy, nor think to worship the Creator by molten gods. You are the work of God's hands. Be not absurd as to worship God's, the work of your own hands. I like, I like Matthew Henry a lot, so um, I just feel like he's, he's given us a picture. We can't serve both. We're either going to serve nothing, come to the end of our life, and realize that it was all for nothing, all vain, or we're going to serve the true God who has revealed himself to us in Scripture. A God who deserves all our praise, that should be glorified in our lives. And again, he grounds it in that, I am the Lord your God. That is why we follow him. It's not because we're trying to earn that. If that's all you get from today, that's all you need. If, I, if you feel like you're hearing last week's sermon again, you might be hearing it again. But the, the difference is here, we're seeing a practical application of what we heard last week. Verse 5, now when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it and the next day, but what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. So if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an offense. It will not be accepted. Everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity. For he has profaned the holy thing of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. So we don't have peace offerings today. So how, how do we, what's the principle that we see here? What is it that we see being transmitted to God's people? And I believe that what God is saying is, when I ask for something specifically, I'm not asking you to come up with a better way to do it. Our worship of God is His way on His terms. Oftentimes, we want to make things different. We want to come up with a way to make people want to be Christians in a different way. But God's word is enough. We can find in God's word the strength and the words to know what God desires from us. God, God does not leave us in the dark on how to worship him, does he? When he called the people of Israel out, he didn't just say, oh, just do what you want. Do what you think is right. No, he gave them the law to show him who he is and their relationship with him. In the same way, we as Christians have to realize that though we don't have these sacrificial systems, 
that in Christ we are called to live for God and to honor him in our lives. And so just in this sacrifice, we see the, the thought that here they have two days. So just in case you don't know how this sacrifice works, the, um, the Jew, Jewish person would bring their peace offering and it would be sacrificed, but then they would be given the meat to eat. So this was not a sacrifice where only the the uh, priests would eat it. Actually, the people who brought the sacrifice would also eat of this food. And so what he's saying is, you didn't do that. If you don't do that, if you don't do it in my prescribed timing, then in verse 8, there is justice. So this also, this, this specific command, this specific law is pointing to the fact that God's people will receive his justice as well. When we profane, or the word there actually profane can also be translated offense, which is actually, that's the ESV, but it's unclean. And it's only used in reference to unclean meat. That's the only time it's used. It's only used three times in the, in the Old Testament, that Hebrew word. And so it's always taking what God has made clean through the sacrifice, the offering, and it becomes unclean because they did not obey God. And then they're cut off from His people. I mean, that is, being cut off from God's people is, you might as well be dead. Because you're no longer a part of his people. You're put out of camp. So this is, this is back in the camp days of the Israelites. You, when you're out of the camp, no manna, no water from rocks, or whatever other means God provides. Your, sta- your sandals start wearing out. Your clothes start rotting on your body. I mean, all the provision of God stops when you're cut off. So God is, is showing that he's serious about justice. About his law that he will judge those who are trying to do things in their own strength. God, When we obey God in the power of his strength, we can draw near to him. But if we try to do it on our own, it's just like this guy saying, well, man, I... I don't think I'm going to have food to eat on the third day, so I'm going to keep this leftover till tomorrow. No, that's not God's way. He will provide. I don't know why they would wait till the third day, but whatever the reason, God is saying, I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will honor your sacrifice because you're doing it my way. So we see, again, right there, that God is, He will judge His people when we don't obey. Verse 9, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Nor shall you glean your vineyard. 
nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. What does this show about God to us? When I read this passage, I thought a lot about the story of Ruth and Boaz. Remember, they're harvesting. And what's she doing? She's following the harvesters. Why? Because she knew that they weren't going to come back for more. Naomi had had taught her, remember, she wasn't a Jew. Naomi had told her, look, you just follow the harvesters around and whatever's left you can have. That's God's provision for you as a stranger. And so she's following them behind and Boaz sees her and he, he asks them, Who, who's that, that woman? And, and they tell him, oh, that's the daughter-in-law of, of Naomi. And so then what does Boaz do? He tells them to leave even more. He says, leave even more extra for her so that she can provide for her and her mother-in-law. Boaz was a perfect example of a man of God, a perfect example of this man who cared for the stranger and cared for the needy. He was taking care of a stranger. Men who, I mean, just think about it. Naomi and her husband, they left Israel. They went to another country and their sons married pagan women. But Boaz didn't hold that against her. She was in his fields searching for food and he not only allowed her to take what was left, but he told his men, oh, drop some extra. And that, that this shows the heart of God for the stranger in our midst. And this, uh, Leviticus 19 has two passages talking about our care for the stranger and for the needy. I don't think some people in political office would like this passage. And I'm not going to name any names. But our love for strangers is not based on what feels good. Our love for what the world wants should not affect the way we treat the needy and the stranger in our midst. Our community of believers should be receiving of the needy and the stranger. That doesn't mean that I agree with doing things illegally. Okay? I'm not going to tell someone, oh, you should do things illegally. No. But Megan and I, in living in Guatemala, we saw the lines at the embassy. Every day there was a line of probably... I mean, it was nonstop, all day long, people trying to go the legal way. And so that, that's another side. It's, it's like, here are people trying to do things legally. They're spending thousands of dollars, and there's no guarantee. So I understand both sides, but I, I want to say, as Christians, it's not our, it's not our responsibility to um, defend our nation, except in prayer. It's not our, our responsibility, I believe, to defend what is going on either side. Our responsibility is to defend the honor of our God. 
And the way we treat strangers, the way we treat the needy, is one of those ways that we show the world God's compassion for them. But this verse also gives us a picture that is not often seen. When the needy and the stranger are able and willing to work, they should be given work. Not not just given a handout. That's another thing that we've all seen. You you give someone money, and, and instead of... I'm not saying, again, there are some who have needs and they, they are not able physically to meet their needs, and the, the Bible is clear about that. But this verse also gives us the, the realization that the needy are going around, they're picking up the scraps as they go. They're not... They're not just sitting down and hoping someone will show up at their front door with a, a check saying, uh, here, do whatever you want. So there, there is a sense in which God has compassion, but he also requires something from us. And, it, and uh, also, I, I believe the, this command it teaches us that we don't have to demand our rights for everything that we can or are able to claim. So, whether that's in work, that, that we should seek to bless others in what God has given us. That, you know, we've all been blessed, I, I think. I know I have in the physical realm. God has really blessed Megan and I. And that we should seek to give and be giving and be giving people because God gave just his only son for us again I believe that these passages from three till the end are all teaching us that God is not to be put in a box at church or in a box at work or at school or at at home God should be, our service to God should affect every part of our lives. We can't compartmentalize God to say, well, he, he acts in this way at work, He acts in this way at church, and then at home in a different way. No. God is the same whether we're in school or work or whatever situation we're in. God has not changed. Our, unfortunately, oftentimes it's our perception of him that changes verse 11 you shall not steal nor deal falsely nor lie to one another you should not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God I am the Lord stealing and false dealing and lying inevitably profane the name of of the one who has called us out and made us his own. When we claim the name of Christ and do not keep our word or engage in ungodly behavior, we're profaning his name. Therefore, we are making our God and his people like the gods and the peoples of this world. So what are we saying? What am I trying to say? When we steal, deal falsely, lie... 
It is the same as doing verse 12. We say, I am a Christian. I am a believer in Christ. And then when we do those things, we're telling the world that that's what Christ is like. Why? Because a Christian is a follower of Christ. Christ. So when we say, I'm a Christian and we lie, what are we telling the world? We're proclaiming that Christ is a liar. When we steal, we're saying Christ is a thief. When we seek ways to take from others what's not ours, we're profaning the name of Christ. So this affects every part of our lives. It's not just the physical stealing. It doesn't just affect us. It proclaims to the world that we and our God are thieves. In Psalm 51, verse 6, it says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. David knew what it meant to lie. This verse, uh, Psalm 51, is his confession before the Lord of what he did. His sin with Bathsheba, his murder of her husband, and the lies that he had, had believed himself. But when God confronted him, he realized, I, I was lying in my inmost being. You desire truth in, your, in our inner, hidden part. So we, our lives, our actions, the practical part of being a Christian is a declaration to the world of who God is. And also, I, I, I see here too that truth between brothers is absolutely essential. And, that, and we see that in Colossians 3.9. It says, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. So, if we are new creations, I'm not saying we don't sin that we don't fall. But we don't make a practice of lying to one another. Our honesty, if we, as we'll see later on, if we have a problem with a brother, we need to address it in love and be honest with one another because as long as we're playing the everything's okay, nothing happened, what's happening? That bitterness, that, that division is coming up inside of us. And so, when we say, well, I, when we lie to one another, even about issues that we need to deal with, in a sense, we're, we're calling our brothers to think that everything is okay when things need to be dealt, dealt with. And another way this applies is, we need to be faithful to fulfill our promises to do what we say we're going to do. And I know, especially those of you who have been in business, it's really hard sometimes 
to keep your word when somebody else is not. But what are we doing? We're doing what God has done to us. Remember that day when we committed our lives to the Lord for the first time? And how many times we have not kept our word to the Lord since, but He has faithfully drawn us back, faithfully shown us mercy and compassion. That is what this is about too. When we say, I'm going to do that for that price, and we don't give a, in case, it, but if prices of materials go up, we'll have to change the price. If we don't do that, guess what? They call us three, four, six months later, and they say, you said you'd do it for that price. What am I going to do? I find out that the price has doubled for materials. And I have to make a decision. Am I going to be faithful to my word and proclaim to these people that my word is good? If, if they find out in another way that the price has doubled on materials and they say, hey, I, I want to pay you more, that's a different story. But can you imagine how much greater... Um, example that would have on them than if it was just me saying well the price has doubled I'm going to have to change my, my price but if we keep our word God will provide that's what God it, God is calling us to trust him completely I feel like Leviticus 19 is kind of a, a mixture between Christian ethics and uh, like how, how to live the Christian life it's really such a uh, a full passage on showing and demonstrating who God is in the way that we live. Verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you at all, all night until morning. This passage is teaching us that we are not to take from others that which is not ours. Whether through oppression, robbery, or even withholding the wages of a hired man. In these times, and even in the times of Christ, and, and honestly outside of the U.S., many men are day laborers. And the only way they're going to eat sometimes that evening, and even in the morning, is if you pay them at the end of the day. They don't have a weekly or a bi-weekly paycheck to count on. And so to withhold the wages is to say, well, if you have the money, and you're saying, well, I'm, I'm not going to pay you because da-da-da, God's saying, be faithful, pay them, take care of them, don't take advantage of their need so that they're going to come back tomorrow and work some more and then and you're going to do the same thing and they're going to keep coming back because why they need the money they need to provide for their family this passage made me think a lot of uh, James chapter 5 I'll turn there real quick here I know that it seems like well all these things are all over the place <laughs> that's the point I I believe that 
God wants us to see that service and devotion to Him should be in every part of who we are. So James chapter 5, he's talking to the wealthy. It's interesting, it's almost like he's thinking about Leviticus 19 here. He says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which have been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. So, the rich who are hoarding to themselves are taking advantage of those who don't have. And James is saying, and then verse 5, You have lived luxury on the earth and lived a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death a righteous man, and he does not resist you. And he goes on later to talk to the brothers be patient. Don't let this get you down if you're treated this way. But show love and, and care for one another. But we see again that this is not just a, a one-time experience. And if we look here really quick on our way back in the book of Amos... It's right after Joel. Amos... Chapter 2, because I want us to see here this specific command is the re, one of the main reasons that God judged Israel. They oppressed their neighbor, they oppressed their brothers. So here we have Israel, the northern tribes that uh, Amos is speaking to. Amos chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless. Or a better translation is, they trample the poor and helpless under their feet. Also turn aside the way of the humble. And, they, and all this is to profane the name of the Lord. They're selling, like it says here, they're selling the righteous for money. And they're selling a person for the price of sandals. That's how oppressed, how they are oppressing. And in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 1, uh, Amos, by God's inspiration, doesn't spare any words here. What does he say? Ha hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring now that I may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. God is condemning His people for their oppression of one another. And 
when we oppress the poor and crush the needy, we're not demonstrating to the world who God is. We're just demonstrating the power of sin over this world. So, the next time that we have the opportunity to care for someone, we should think of, am I not wanting to help this person because it's going to be inconvenient? Am I not wanting to help this person because I want more for myself? Or are we going to say, Lord, I want to be used by you. I want to preach and proclaim the gospel in my life, in the way that I live. Verse 14 really ties into this some more. It says, you shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. And this passage, it gives us the feeling we are not called as Christians to take advantage of those who cannot help themselves. And that doesn't just include, I believe the principle applies to anything. So if we have an ability to understand something, but someone else doesn't, and we take advantage of that lack of understanding or that lack of knowledge, we are doing this very thing. Or maybe that person is not even in our midst and we're cursing them or speaking badly about them or whatever it may be. This kind of goes back to oppression that we are called as Christians to be holy devoted to the Lord in our lives. That every part of us, the way that we treat even those who cannot are unable to help themselves should be uh, the same. I mean, I'm just thinking about uh, how many times you hear about scams that are targeting the elderly. You know, insurance scams or whatever it may be. People are taking advantage of people who don't know what is right or not. They just, uh, they're trusting and they're, and the people are taking advantage of that. That is not of God. And it should not be of us. Verse 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. I think often, I think our society has moved uh, to be partial to the poor. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. Fairness is, goes both ways, whether we're poor or not. Poor or have been blessed. Our justice, our judgment for a situation should not be based on what that person has been in the past. It's based on the truth. And that's what God is saying, that our justice is not based on... Um, their economic standing or the way that we treat someone even kind of like James talks about and that we as Christians are called to care for someone 
the same, no matter what. If they come in this room and one has nice clothes and look like, well, they have money, or they come in and they're in sackcloth, our treatment of them should not be any different. Again, this is just another aspect. In verse 17, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. If we don't do verse 17, if we begin, I kind of hinted at this earlier, if we are, well, I I think I missed a verse, sorry. Verse 6 says, you shall not go about as a slander among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor, I am the Lord. Oftentimes, verse 16 happens to us. People speak evil of us. People make up stuff about us. Find any reason to speak evil of us. And we reply with verse 7, we hate them. Or we, um, and we're not willing to reprove them. Oftentimes, if we see what Christ has given us in the New Testament for church discipline our going to a brother in, a, in sin we show them our hatred by not talking to them does that make sense like a lot of people say well if you love them you'll just let them do what they want that's not love is, is that path leading them to hell that's not love and so love has to confront sin Oftentimes, but sometimes it covers sin. If we read in Proverbs eleven thirteen, it says, "Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered." And this is there is a a line that we have to be careful of. But oftentimes, I think it's not the line that we're having a problem with. We are way over the line. We think we're the Christian version of TMZ, for those of you that know what that is. (laughs) They're the tabloid people who have to tell every bit of news that it may or may not be true about some celebrity. We think we're the police. We've got a or the news media, we have to throw out all the information, whether we know it's true or not, because that's what we're called to do. No, we're called as, as Christians to not be that way. And, and Matthew Henry says this, It is as bad an office as a man can put himself into to be the publisher of every man's faults. Divulging what it was secret, aggravating crimes, and making the worst of everything that was amiss with design to blast and ruin men's reputation and to sow discord among neighbors. 
When we're going to share something, whether it's with family, anyone, our first thought should be, is this meant for the good of the person that I want to talk about? Is this meant for the glory of God, their growth in Christ, or is this meant to make me feel better and make them look bad? I think Twitter could definitely use uh, a few of these passages. I mean, it is full. Full. I mean, every day there's some new, oh, so-and-so said this mean thing about that person. And, and it's like, it's just a constant war of words with no, with no, uh, no stopping. We're not to be like that. The church should not be one who is gossiping against each other, hating one another, but instead we're going to one another, hey, I heard uh, Jack told me that so-and-so said this. I'm chasing this down. They said you told them this. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, we should be, we should chase down the, the, the gossip instead of just believing it, Right? This this is not about us being better. This is about us chasing it out because if people know that you're going to chase down gossip, guess what? They're not going to be talking to you about gossip because they're no, they know you're going to keep following the source until you find where it started. So we should chase those things down and and not and reprove one another in love because we don't want to incur sin and we don't want to have a heart of vengeance where we're letting bitterness as verse 18 talks about a grudge to come into us but we're to love our neighbor as ourselves Verse 19, you are to keep my statutes, you shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle, you shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. This command is kind of strange, right? I mean, we read this and we're thinking, what does this have to do with all this other stuff? And I believe that this is the idea that when God created the world, He created it perfect. He gave the animals of their kind, the crops. And so what, what I believe God is calling is, He's calling us to purity. To not mix our religion with other, other things of the world. He's a God of purity. He's calling us to be different from the world. So if you're wearing a cotton mixed shirt, I don't think you're sinning. This, you know, right? Or if you ate some hybrid beef last night, I don't think you're going to be in trouble. Um, but I believe that the 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 point is that because He created everything good, He's calling us, His people, to simplicity and sincerity in our religion that we're not trying to mix in all these other uh, pagan rituals, these other ideas 
to follow God that God has given us perfectly the way to follow Him. Verse 20. Now if a man lies carnally with a woman who is a slave acquired for another man, but who has no way been redeemed nor given her freedom, there shall be punishment. They shall not, however, be put to death because she was not free. He shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord to the doorway of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. The priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord. For a sin which he has committed and the sin which he has committed will be forgiven him. This one is really hard for us to understand in our day and age because we don't have slavery here in the U.S. And, um, but it, I believe that in this passage, God is trying to protect the marriage of this woman because she has been betrothed. That's the idea of acquired here. It's not as a... Sl- Though she was a slave, she has been betrothed to someone. And in Jewish custom... If you were a Jewish bondwoman, then when you were married, before, the, before you got married, you were freed from slavery. And so, before that, this man took advantage of her. And while I don't understand this law completely, I do believe that it shows that even in the worst situations, God has compassion and He has a way of escape and a way of sacrifice that as we talked about atonement uh, a couple times back that in Christ no matter what our sin is God has given us relief he has forgiven us even in the worst situation where this man has taken advantage of his power over this woman that even in that situation God had provided a way of forgiveness for him and That doesn't mean we go out and sin, but that God in Christ has forgiven us no matter what our sin was, that we can be drawn to him. Verse 23, when you enter the land and plant all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. In the fifth year you are to eat of its fruit, that its yield may increase to you. I am the Lord your God. So, we know the law of Sabbath, and this is kind of a similar thing to me. The law of Sabbath, you you had to trust God to provide for the time that you couldn't work. So, God would provide enough manna on Friday to last you till Sunday. So, in this way, God is saying, you plant these trees when you first come in. I'm going to provide for you food until the fifth year. So you you come in, God has already, what does he say? He, He says, you're going to get to eat the fruit of trees that you didn't plant. You're going to have grain that you didn't plant. All these things I'm giving you. And so when they come in and they plant the trees, those first three years are kind of off and on. If, If you know much about orchards and vineyards and all that, they didn't have 
those first few years are kind of bad years for fruit. And the Jews, actually, they would go and they would pull the fruit as soon as they would see it appear those first three years and just drop it on the ground because it stunted the growth of the plant. And so, but on the fourth year, that was the year that the fruit was absolutely the best, the sweetest. It was kind of like bringing that perfect spotless lamb. And so I believe what God is teaching us in this command today is that we are to bring him our absolute best and and we're not to hold it hold it back and so if that is for example uh, our income if we're talking about a, a form of tithes and offerings that we're bringing not just what we got after taxes we're giving him our best our everything and um, so I believe that here we see God is calling us to being our best fruit, and that even our time. I mean, that's a big, like, what, are, what does our time demonstrate to God? So Sunday morning, are we bringing our best on Sunday morning, or is it kind of a, uh, I'm just glad that I don't have to go to work today? Or are we giving Him our best? You know, Sunday is the first day of the week. Um, are we bringing our best here? Are we worshiping as uh, Brother Bobby shared about with our entire beings this morning? Are we coming with expectation to meet with God? And God says, when you give me your best, you're not giving up anything because I'm going to bless the fifth year and it's going to be just incredible how much I bless you. It's going to be overflowing. Verse 26. So verse 26 all the way through 29 is talking to us about what pagans were doing. And so God is again going back to this idea, don't mix these pagan things into your life. You're to serve me in simplicity, in the way that I have shown you, in the sincerity that I've shown you. So he says in verse 26, You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor practice divination or soothsaying. So he's saying, don't eat the blood that is um, being given in these sacrifices. That's what the pagans do. And don't go to other gods. I am your God. Why are you seeking counsel at the mouth of the devil, my enemy? Verse 27, you shall not round off the side growth of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. And this one's kind of strange for us, but it was, a, it was another pagan practice. They would do the side growth so that their head would look like a globe. It was some kind of thing so that they could worship whatever god that was. And the same with their beards. It was all so that their head would look round. Um... Verse 28, you shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. This one is really interesting because what they would do is they would cut themselves. It's similar to the priests of Baal. Remember, they were like cutting themselves and trying to wake up their God. In the same way, this cutting and the tattoos were made for the dead to make propitiation 
for the dead. Like these images that they would tattoo on their bodies and the cuts that they would make were all so that they could um, get the God to show favor to the dead, to their ancestors, to their children, whoever it was that was dead. And so in all these things, and then verse 29, do not profane your daughter for making her a harlot so that the land will not fall to harlotry and the land become full of lewdness. So pagan practice, again, was to sell their, their daughters to become temple harlots or whores or whatever you, word you want to use. And this, these things, God said, are an abomination. They are of this pagan world. I don't want you practicing or making these things a part of your worship of me. I am God. I have set the way that I want you to worship me. So, our principle here is we have been given God's way of doing things. We have been given and told, don't turn to the world. Don't turn to the devil and his demonic means of of, uh, magic, which we'll see even later. Witchcraft and all these the Ouija board. I mean, there is so much out there today, or even uh, superstition. Oh, I got my rabbit's foot. It's going to make me okay. It didn't seem to work for the rabbit. <laughs> the rabbit didn't make it. It had four of them. Um, or, oh, I'm not going to walk there because a black cat went in front of me. Or, I'm not going to walk under a ladder. Um, I mean, there's so much superstition we don't even realize it's just or or we're like oh if i'm lucky something will happen i'm not saying you can't use that word it just every time i hear it i'm thinking is it luck or is it the lord (laughs) i think our language has a lot to do with how we we live um but where do those things come from pagan superstition worldly superstition and so we should constantly be seeking, where does, where does that idea come from? Whatever it may be, like some, some fear or some practice that some people do. I mean, people have talismans that if you rub it a certain number of times. And there's just so many ways to, to mix God, mix with God other things that the world is doing and, and think that it's okay. And so we have to be careful. Um, Again, it's because he's the Lord. Verse 30, it says again, And you shall keep my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And this one, I I felt like uh, Bobby preached this verse already. But how do we show reverence to God when we come together as a body? This building is nothing. It's just a building, right? But it's a place that we have set aside to worship God together. And so when we're coming to this place, what preparation are we making as believers? What expectation do we come with? Are we expecting that the Most High, Holy God is going to meet with us? Are we coming with an expectation to worship God with all we are? Are we showing in our preparation, in our prayers before, whether it's 
Saturday night or on the way to church on Sunday or just during the week? Are we seeking to have pure hearts before Him? Are we seeking to worship Him as Bobby leads us or whoever it is? Are we seeking to hear from God? Because a lot, oftentimes our dress indicates what something in the heart. I'm not saying it always is. We, we shouldn't always assume that. But what is it in our lives that we expect when we come together as a body? Are we coming in reverence of God? Does that mean that we are seeking to find everything in Him? That we are joining together as a body that's been covenanted together? I pray we are. If we aren't, it's a good opportunity. Like I said, Leviticus 19 has so much and I just hope that we continue to go back and look at these things and and to think about how the Lord is calling us to complete and total devotion to Him. Verse 31, Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. He's saying, don't turn to these people. They don't have anything. Remember Saul? Of course, Saul hadn't come yet, but Saul definitely disobeyed this command. But what happened? God was with him. He sought other means, and God left him. Why do you think David in Psalm 51 said, Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. We all need His Spirit with us. We don't want Him to take it from us because we know that if He's not with us, we're not hearing from Him. Verse 32, again, it talks about our care for the elderly, for our parents in a sense. You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged, and you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. I think this command has become so uh, unliked in this age. There's so little respect for the elderly. I mean, how many of you have visited a, a, uh, a nursing home and many of the elderly have no one to care for them? Like their family, they, yeah, they have the people there, but their families don't visit them. They're, they're, they don't have anyone. There's no one going to, to, to be with them. And I think that's a part of showing love for the Lord. That that's a way that we honor them. What's a way that we honor them? By seeking their counsel. It, I mean, the majority of you are older than me. So I can, I can get a lot of wisdom from your grayer heads than I. I'm starting to get some. But, um, but in the way that we share with one another, whether we're older or younger, we show the way that God has brought a community. It doesn't matter. Our ages don't make us better than anyone, but God has given each of us wisdom as we grow in our walk with the Lord that I can learn a lot from Bobby, and there might be something he can learn from me. I'm not sure. (laughs) Uh, But we can all learn from one another, and 
and God has put that wisdom in the church. And we, we shouldn't say, well, oh, you're, you're in your 60s or whatever age it is now, so you just need to sit back and, and relax and not worry about discipling the young people in the church. I don't think that's healthy. We're called to be constantly pouring in to the next generation and not just sitting back and hoping things will turn out all right. God is calling the young people to look up to their elders and, and to seek counsel from them and to honor them. Verse 33, When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as a native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So here he talks again about strangers. I think this again is pointing to our need to love the strangers, whether that is uh, refugees here in Louisville has a ton of them, or um, I mean, there are college students from all over the world in universities here in Louisville, and Lexington, and Bowling Green, and I mean, what? There's like 700 plus students from Saudi Arabia in in Bowling Green alone. You couldn't talk to them about Christ in their own country, but we can here. So, if we have opportunities to share our faith with people from other countries who are here, whether legally or whatever their means, God has brought them here possibly for the chance that we could share the gospel with them. And so I would encourage you, as, as I need to encourage myself, to take those opportunities to seek them out and seek a means to, to share Christ with them and to care for them and to love them as though they're a part of our own family. Why? Because it demonstrates God's love for the strangers. God's love for the alien. Verse 35, you shall, not, you shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall thus observe all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them. I am the Lord. So 35 and part of 36, God is again going back to being just in our our business practices, that we are not seeking to get gain by having, and I've had this happen in Guatemala, they, they all have these little weights, but you don't know what they actually weigh. They just tell you, oh, that's a, a pound, and they put it on their, they've got these finger scales there. They put their weight on one side, and then they fill it up till it looks even. And you're like, I'm not sure that, how much does that weigh? <laughs> you don't have a, there you don't know who's being honest and who's not. Or, or you're watching their finger to see if they're like uh, trying to push it one way or another because I have had that happen. And uh, so here we don't, we take it for granted because we go, to the, we go to the meat department, what do they do? They put it on a scale, we can see the numbers and we trust it. But in many places in the world, you just, people are taking advantage by this means. And uh, I remember there was a scandal at one point in gasoline uh, where it was saying that you got more gas than you actually did. I don't, it was 
I think it was probably 10 years ago, there was a gas station that was doing that. They had had it where it was like doubling the number every certain number. And so you would say you had like 30 gallons. You paid for 30 gallons, but really you only got 15. Um, and so we shouldn't seek an, a way to do things like that. We, we should always seek to be above reproach and that we avoid those things that are going to dishonor God. Why? Because we are created to glorify Him in our lives, in our actions. That's why He, he called us out of the, you know, Egypt like He did with His people. He called us out of this world but has left us in. Why? So that we can glorify Him to the world. That we can show that God can turn an imperfect, wretched person like me into a man of God, a, a holy person, a saint, that God is capable with every single person in here to bring us to salvation and to change us completely. And that's the basis. His calling. He, I feel like verse the end of 36 really gets us. The Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They didn't bring themselves out. We didn't bring ourselves out of the world. God separated us, consecrated us to Himself. Why? So that we could glorify Him. And we do that in verse 37 by observing all His statutes and all His ordinances to do them. And He's not just talking about Leviticus 19. He's talking about the entire law. That our lives as Christians can only be lived if we think that we can and can fulfill Leviticus 19 in our own strength. I, I can't. I know that. Because I know I have not done all these things. But in Christ we can live a life that is holy, set apart, and glorifying to Him. And a life that proclaims the gospel with our words and our actions. Because we can't just say the right things and expect people to believe us. If we don't live like Christ, they're not going to believe the gospel that we're preaching. If we don't love like Christ loved us, they're not going to believe that Christ loves them. So I pray that between last week and this week, we see that in Christ, in His power, we can do these things. That in the Holy Spirit's power living in us, we can be godly men and women. And that our church could be an influence in the world for His kingdom.